Hello again, Ars Technica listeners. This is the second installment of a three-part interview with UC Irvine quantitative psychologist Don Hoffman and his wildly original and quite mind-boggling take on the nature of root reality. If you haven't yet heard part one, there's a link on the page where this player is embedded, and I strongly suggest that you go back and listen to it before this one. And with that, back to my conversation with Don Hoffman. Let's now get into the theory that with all the hacks and horsepower and our visual cortex and with different evolutionary pressures, different things could be constructed. Let's start by maybe talking about what you call the interface theory of perception. Our assumption that evolution by natural selection shaped our perceptions to show us the truth. That theory, I claim, is wrong. What evolution has done instead is much more like shaping the interface on your computer, which, as we talked about, is there not to show you the diodes and resistors and voltages and magnetic fields. It's there to hide the truth and to simplify the reality in a way that you can use it to do what you need to do. It shows you a little paintbrush so you can paint. It shows you a little email icon so you can make email. It shows you a trash can. The relationship with the reality is not one of resemblance. It's not one of similarity. There are causal relationships, of course, between your interface and the objective reality. And that's why you can control the reality. But what you're seeing is utterly unlike that reality. So the claim is that when we perceive space and time, that's just our desktop. We're not seeing a pre-existing space and time. The idea that space has existed and was the pre-existing stage before any life and before any consciousness, that's wrong, according to this interface theory. Space is something that you create right now. It's a data structure that you create for data compression and error correction of information about fitness. And then three-dimensional objects are the same thing. They are data structures that you create. I look over here and see a chair. I'm creating a data structure that's telling me certain fitness information. I look away. I no longer see the chair, but as computer scientists say, I'm garbage collecting that data structure. I'm throwing it away to save memory. Now I look back and I see the chair and I create that data structure again because now I need that data structure. The chair that I perceive is there to help me. It's not there to show me the truth. Just like Michael Watson's basket of ivy is there to help him, for example, in cooking and so forth, it's not there to show him the truth. There is no real basket of ivy out there. That's, that's silly. None of us would believe that there's a basket of ivy when you're tasting Angostura bitters. Take the lesson from Michael Watson and apply it to every physical object around you. They're no more resembling the nature of objective reality any more than Michael Watson's ivy resembles Angostura bitters. So there could be a colossally complex, nine-dimensional, let's go string theory for a moment and imagine the universe exists in nine dimensions. There could be this colossally complex, nine-dimensional predatory force that's out there. And my great-great-great-great-grandfather had some distortion in his brain that caused him to perceive it as giant cat. Right. And there's no more giant cat than these bitters are a bucket of ivy. But boy, did he survive while his cousin, who was gazing in awe at this nine-dimensional specter, got devoured. And that simplification got handed down. And then the interface theory of perception says that the UI is space-time. As we perceive it, as Newton perceived it, as Einstein said, actually, it's more complicated than you think. He was still just perceiving the desktop of the computer, although he was seeing it in a more fancy way than most of us. It really is just the user interface. Objects are icons. And what that means is 
when you look away from the chair, the chair ain't there anymore. Exactly right. The chair has no position, no momentum, no physical properties when it's not observed because the chair is not a pre-existing object in reality. It's a data structure that I create on the fly and destroy when I don't need it. And so if we're, again, to take the crossing the street idea, if that SUV is bearing down on you, if it's just an icon, why don't you just stay put? Because an icon never really hurt anybody. Great question. So I wouldn't step in front of the SUV for the same reason I wouldn't take my blue rectangular icon for an email I'm writing and carelessly drag it to the trash can. Not because I take the icon literally, the email is not blue and rectangular, but I do take it seriously. If I drag that icon carelessly to the trash can, I could lose all the work that I've done in that email. And if it was a letter or a book that I'm writing, then I'd be very, very careful because I could lose a year of work uh, dragging that icon to the trash can. And that's the key point. From an evolutionary point of view, as you pointed out, the symbols that we have have been shaped by natural selection to help us stay alive. We better take them seriously. But just because we take them seriously doesn't mean that we take them literally. So I take the icon seriously, but I don't take it literally. We tend to jump from, I must take it seriously, therefore, I must take it literally. That's actually a logical flaw. It's a logical error. Going back to that proposition that I started with, that we see reality as it is because that is very adaptive evolutionarily, that seems logical. When we get to the point of saying, actually, space-time is a UI, and real reality is radically different from that, the question might be, well, why would we do such a thing? Why would we and our ancestors craft something that has no bearing to underlying reality? Your answer actually is evolutionary pressure, counterintuitively, that a species which sees reality in a pristinely accurate way competes with a rival species that throws away most or even all of reality for a more agile metaphor, the latter species will win every time. Is that correct? That's right. So I'm saying something that's even more radical than just the idea that our perceptions are simplification of reality. Most people would say, I understand that evolution is going to do things on the cheap and try to do things fast. And so we're going to get sketches of the table, not get the full detail of the table. And we'll just get sketches of things that we need to stay alive. I'm saying something more radical. I'm saying that when evolution by natural selection is shaping our perceptions, the selection forces are uniformly against anything at all like the truth. In evolutionary game theory, these functions tell you what payoffs you will get for the various actions you take, given the state of the world, given what creature you are, given your state. The whole game is to get more fitness payoffs than your competition. So if you do anything besides look at the payoffs, you're going to lose. And it turns out the fitness functions themselves are just utterly unlike objective reality. Now, this is what you call fitness before truth. That's right. And you've done a lot of mathematic modeling, which you argue supports this. That's right. So with two of my graduate students, Justin Mark and Brian Marion, we did genetic algorithms and evolutionary game simulations. We ran hundreds of thousands, even millions of randomly chosen worlds with resources that we would throw into them. And we would put creatures in these worlds. We played God. We let some creatures see all of the truth. We put others that saw nothing of the truth and were just tuned to the fitness functions. And we let them compete. And what we found uniformly was that organisms that saw the truth never outcompeted organisms of equal complexity that were just tuned to the fitness functions. They were in a world where they could wander around and forage for resources. It was a foraging game. 
but their perceptions had to evolve and their actions had to evolve. And so their initial actions were really stupid and their initial perceptions were completely crazy. But after 500 generations, the creatures that evolved were foraging optimally. And so we could look and see of those creatures that survived 500 generations and bred, what kind of perceptions did they have? None of them saw the truth. All of them were tuned to the fitness functions. And in fact, I doubt in the complex world that at any stage in the genetic evolution would a true perceiving creature ever arise. There would be no selection pressures for it to appear at any point. Now, one of the very weird elements of reality that you argue supports this is the famous double slit experiment. And for those listeners who know exactly what the double slit experiment is, lucky you. For those who do not, it's a notoriously difficult thing to explain without visuals. And in fact, it's a notoriously difficult thing to explain with visuals. Since I'm the non-scientist in the room, I'm going to attempt to explain it. Because if I can understand it, most people probably can. And this is an experiment that should be pointed out, has been carried out probably thousands of times now, correct? Yes. Highly, highly consistent from experiment to experiment. This is an utterly non-controversial statement about the way reality works. Specifically, light, electrons, and certain other things sometimes behave like a bunch of particles and at other times behave like waves. They have this strange dual nature, which becomes evident at a very, very tiny level, at the quantum level. So first to visualize the particle nature of light, Imagine you have one of those machines that shoots tennis balls, and they're all soaked in blue paint, and you're standing in front of a wall that has two large vertical slits in it. And behind the wall is a canvas, like an artist's canvas, a couple feet behind the wall. And you start firing these tennis balls. What'll happen is that most of the tennis balls are just going to bounce off the wall, but a certain set of them are going to go sailing on some angle through the left slit, and some of them are going to go sailing on another set of angles through the right slit. After a certain amount of time, if you go around and you see your artwork that's resulted, you're going to see a cluster of blue spots where the tennis balls came through the left slit, and another cluster where they came through the right slit. And that is basically what would happen if light were behaving like a particle. Right. So in a sense, these tennis balls are behaving very particle-like, very much like lone photons should behave photons being the tiniest indivisible units of light. Particles flying through two slits should behave like our tennis balls and create two clusters of dots. That with photons, we use photographic film or a digital sensor to record where they land rather than a canvas. Now, to visualize what happens when light acts like a wave, imagine we have a huge, deep pan of blue paint. It's so deep, we can lower the wall with the two openings halfway into it. So now it's like we have two arched doorways on this little sea of paint instead of two slits. And the pan is filled right to the rim. One more drop of paint and it's overflowing. And the far edge of the pan is touching a fresh canvas. So we're going to make some more art. Now, on our side of the pan, across from the canvas, we start dropping rocks into the paint at regular intervals to make a series of waves. Those waves radiate out in the form of expanding semicircles, toward the wall with the two arched doorways. Now, when a wave hits, most of it's stopped by the wall, but the parts that go through the doorways become two mini-waves, which themselves start radiating out as semicircles. Now, when these two new sets of waves meet, they're going to interfere with each other. Sometimes the crest of a left-side wave will meet with the crest of a right-side wave, and they'll join up and become a higher crest. 
Other times, a crest will meet a trough and they'll cancel out. At that point of the wavefront, there will be no wave. Eventually, these much more complicated waves come to the far end of the pan and they splash over the side. Where two crests have teamed up, they'll make a higher and deeper mark. Where a crest and a trough meet, there's nothing, so they'll make no mark at all. And the result will be a banded pattern of paint on our canvas. Light, dark, light, dark, light, dark. Or a banded pattern of light on our sensor if we're using light instead of paint. And here, our light is acting like waves. Okay, now imagine you're a grad student replicating the famous double slit experiment for the umpteen thousandth time. If you just shine a steady light at the two slits, on the far side, you're going to get the classic banding pattern of waves. So how do you get the two shotgun patterns? Well, a logical answer might be to start firing the light just one photon at a time, because then you're only sending over solitary packets. And you'd think a solitary packet has to either go through the left slit or the right one. Once you've fired enough single photons to create a discernible pattern on the sensor, it's going to be two shotgun clusters, right? Well, wrong. You actually get the banded pattern again. It's like the photons, despite going through one slit or the other, one at a time, somehow choreographed themselves. They coordinated their landings on the sensor so that instead of producing the dual shotgun pattern of random particles, they made this very specific pattern which should only be made by waves of light. It's like you expected a mob of random people to act like individuals, but you got a North Korean stadium putting on a synchronized show. It's like a conspiracy of photons that are ganging up to play a trick on you. So to figure out what's going on, you put a detector on each slit, which will detect whether or not a photon goes through it. And this way, you'll know which side each photon goes through before making its contribution to the banding pattern. But now, the photons suddenly start acting like particles, like tennis balls. And they obediently create the two shotgun patterns rather than the banded interference pattern. It's like they know they're being watched or measured to be more precise. And sure enough, if you turn off the detectors, the photons go back to making the banded patterns of interfering waves. Now, we could go on for days about what might be causing this, but the cliff notes are that many decades after discovering this, thousands of the brightest minds on Earth have no idea. Did I get it more or less right? Yeah, that's a very good example. It's one of the most clear I've heard. So what that says, and I'm going to quote something that you've written, we don't passively observe a pre-existing objective reality, but actively participate in constructing reality by our actions. And that's, I guess, how you would tie the double slit experiment to this whole argument that we create reality by looking at it. But you're talking about chairs, not photons. That's right. So the double slit experiment is one of the weirdest things in quantum mechanics. And it indicates that when you don't observe, you cannot say which slit the particle went through. You can't say what its position is. And for most particles, you can't say what its momentum is, what its spin, all these properties. Unless you observe, you cannot say what those properties are. And those properties don't actually take a property until they are observed. And that's the wild thing. And Einstein was worried about this, right? This is why Einstein didn't like quantum mechanics. He wanted a world in which particles really had positions and momenta, even when they weren't observed. And quantum mechanics doesn't allow you to specify what those positions and momenta are unless you observe. So Einstein said, well, whatever quantum mechanics is, it's incomplete. And maybe it's not false, but it's not complete. There's really a position and really momentum. That's called realism. 
that even if you don't measure, particle has a real possession or real momentum, real definite values. That's called realism. And there's that another- reality exists whether you measure it or not. Exactly right. The other concept is locality, that these properties like position and momentum have influences that don't propagate faster than the speed of light. And so local realism is the claim. And that is an intuition that would feel to a reasonably physics-savvy person about as strong as the proposition that the Earth is flat. It just seems overwhelmingly logical. That's right. It seems like, of course, it's going to be true. And it turns out it's false. It's been tested many, many times. There was a theorem by John Bell in 1963 that showed us how we could, in principle, test whether local realism is true. And local realism is false. It's been tested many, many times. All sorts of loopholes have been proposed and closed. And every time we close a loophole, we still get the same effect. Local realism is false. And then John Wheeler Another great physicist who I think did a lot of collaboration with Niels Bohr and other people in the early 20th century on nuclear work, he came up with a thought experiment which made this weird thing slightly weirder. That's right. So Wheeler has what's called the delayed choice experiment. It's the double slit experiment, but after you've shot that photon to the double slits and you wait until it seems like the photon should already be past the double slits, And then you decide, am I going to measure which slit it came through, or uh, am I not going to do that and I'm just going to let an interference pattern occur? So I wait until after the photon should have already been passed to make that decision. And quantum mechanics says it shouldn't affect things. It shouldn't matter when you make that decision. So Wheeler's delayed choice experiment has been done, and quantum mechanics is right. You can make the choice after, quote unquote, the particle should have already gone through or passed the slits and you still get the same effect. So if you're firing photons in this experiment from a significant distance, I mean, light travels, what is it, about a foot per nanosecond or something like that? That's right. And so in this experiment, you fire your photon a long enough distance that the scientific apparatus has enough nanoseconds to actually act. And it has gone through a slit, and one of the two slits, or it has not, or it's done whatever weird quantum thing it's going to do. But the (laughs) point is, after it's passed the hurdle of the slits, then and only then is the decision effectively made to determine if a photon has just gone through a specific slit in the very recent past. That decision's made just as the photon's about to hit the sensor. And if we decide retroactively that we're going to pin it down to having gone through one slit or the other, the photon will then hit the sensor in a way that contributes to that shotgun pattern right, that, right. that suggests it was acting like a particle all along. Whereas if we don't measure it, it's going to hit the sensor in a way that contributes to a banding pattern. But because it's just about to hit the sensor, when the decision's made, it either has to know what's going to be chosen in advance so that it can position itself to land at the correct spot and contribute to the correct pattern, or it has to rewrite its own history since passing through the slit in order to position itself correctly. And this incredibly creepy thing has in fact been done in the lab, and at least in theory, If we were looking at some very, very distant object, like a galaxy that's 10 billion light years away, had that experiment been done with those photons, they will presumably behave in the same manner, which means that on a photon that left its home star 9 billion years ago, we can in effect impose 9 billion years of history on that thing by observing or not observing something that it does in its last instant of travel from here to our detector. That's right. And John Wheeler actually proposed this kind of experiment, a cosmological delayed choice double slit experiment. So 
If you have a quasar that's 10 billion light years away, and you have a black hole between us and that quasar, or a big galaxy, according to Einstein's theory of general relativity, it bends space, and you can get, if circumstances are right, a gravitational lens. From Earth, it can look like there are actually two quasars, when in fact there's only one quasar, but it's an optical illusion created by bending of space. So you can now ask, for each photon that comes to me, do I want to decide whether it came on the left side of the gravitational lens billions of years ago, or did it come from the right side, or do I want to just measure the interference pattern? So suppose I make the choice now, and I decide to measure which side it came on, and I find out that it went on the left side. That means I can say for the last 10 billion years, that photon has been on a path that started from the quasar and went around the left side of the gravitational lens. But if instead today I had chosen to not measure that, just measure the interference pattern, then it would not be true that for the last 9 billion years or 10 billion years, that photon had gone around the left side. So the choice I make today determines the 10 billion year history of that photon. I should point out that gravitational lensing has been overwhelmingly and demonstrably proven. There's lots of images that astrophysicists have captured, and you just Google them, where you see double images of, of galaxies. There's even some triple and quintuple images That's right. that are out there. So now, I think you've argued pretty vociferously that we are seeing a user interface that looks like space-time. Space-time is not objective reality. What is objective reality? The right answer is I don't know. But as a scientist, I'm going to try to propose a theory and try to make it precise and make it testable and see where we go. So the theory that I'm proposing is that consciousness is fundamental. And by that, I mean conscious experiences like experiencing the taste of chocolate, the pain of a headache, the feel of velvet, the smell of a rose, the sound of a trumpet, all these things as conscious experiences, that these are not latecomers in the universe. They are the foundational entities. Those experiences or consciousness, a being's sense of presence and consciousness. Those experiences themselves as part of a conscious experience are going to be fundamental, plus the agent that actually experiences them. These conscious agents have experiences like the taste of chocolate. They have then decisions that they can make about how they might want to affect the experiences of other agents. And so it's all about having experiences and deciding what experiences you're going to pass and how you're going to influence other agents. So it's a big social network of conscious agents interacting. And it's essentially an infinite social network. It's infinitely complicated. And that is root reality in your current thinking. That's right. So that's the proposal. It's, it's all mathematically precise. So I have a definition of conscious agent. There's a whole mathematical apparatus here that I'm evaluating. That you're currently working on. That I'm currently working yeah. on with some colleagues. And then the idea is that each agent that's finite, when it's trying to interact with this infinite network of conscious agents, it's going to have to ignore most of that reality. It's just too complicated. And so it will have to have its own interface. So it uses some of its experiences as a user interface to compress this vast social network into a space-time data compression format. And physical objects are just the dumbed-down symbols that it uses to represent some of its interactions with these conscious agents. Now, part of the reason why you have decided to start with consciousness as the raw material of reality is what's often called the hard problem. Would you care to characterize the hard problem and why that pointed you in this direction of starting with consciousness as opposed to starting with physical elements? So the hard problem of consciousness is surprising. We know empirically that there are lots of correlations between brain activity and specific conscious experiences. So for example, my experience of color is correlated with activity in a part of the brain's cortex called area V4. And if I have a stroke in area V4 in the left hemisphere of my brain, 
I will lose all color experiences in the right part of my visual world. Very, very striking. Clean correlation. Very clear locus. Very clear locus in the yep. brain. And if you take a magnet and inhibit area V4 in a normal person, say in the left hemisphere, then while the person is watching, color will just drain away from the right visual world. Then you pull the magnet away, and fortunately, the color comes flowing back into the right visual world. And we have dozens, perhaps hundreds of these kinds of correlations. They're called NCCs, right? The neural correlates of consciousness, NCCs. And so this is uncontroversial. There are many, many correlations. This geographic mapping of this thing that we experience happens here in the brain, which I might naively think is pretty good proof that the brain is this physical thing that's generating that's causing this it. That's right. stuff. Right. But you go somewhere else with this. That's right. So the neural correlates are sometimes geographic places. Sometimes they're patterns of activities. There are different kinds of neural correlates that we might look at. So we have this data, and it's really clean data, and it suggests there's a very tight correlation between brain activity and conscious experiences. And as you said, everybody has been assuming, okay, that means that the brain is somehow causing these conscious experiences to arise, or maybe brain activity is somehow identical to these conscious experiences. The problem is, we've been trying now to develop a science of consciousness, and we actually now want mathematically precise theories. Of how from this physical substrate these conscious experiences arise. That's right. How is it that sodium and potassium and calcium ions shuttling back and forth through holes in neural membranes, or hundreds of neural membranes, or thousands or millions, whatever it might be, how do you go from that description of the brain in a principled way to, I'm now experiencing the taste of chocolate? Without waving your hands, pulling a rabbit out of the hat, no magic. We want a mathematically precise theory. Why should this brain activity cause the taste of chocolate? And what would I have to do to change the brain activity to make it be the feeling of velvet? This is not philosophy anymore. This is science. We want mathematically precise rules that tie specific kinds of brain activity to specific conscious experiences in a principled way that makes new predictions. And the hard problem is our failure, despite an enormous amount of trying, to figure out how, from inert matter, consciousness can arise. That's right. We have no scientific theories of the kind that I just described. And even worse, we have no idea how to get there. We have no plausible ideas, nothing remotely plausible about how brain activity could cause conscious experiences. And so your response to that is rather than say, well, you know, there was a time for centuries, thousands of years, we were not getting very far with flight. But at some point, lo and behold, we got there. The common response to the situation you just described is like, well, you know, we're pre-Wright brothers here. We're doing all the sort of block and tackle work. And at some point, we're going to be a kitty hawk. You're saying maybe we're going about it wrong instead of starting with matter and getting to consciousness. You're saying, what if consciousness is root reality and matter is actually a product of that? Exactly. So our technical listeners here, we conclude the second installment of my interview with Don Hoffman. And of course, part three is coming tomorrow. As mentioned before, if you can't wait to hear part three, you can just head on over to my site at after-on.com or type the words after on into your favorite podcast player and scroll through the episodes to find this one, which originally ran on April 30th. There you'll also find lots of episodes about life sciences, above all genomics and synthetic biology, conversations about quantum computing, augmented reality, robotics, cryptocurrency, astrophysics, drones, and a whole lot more. 
or you could just join me here tomorrow on ours.